Hello everyone, welcome to part two of our interview with Dr. Arturo Hernandez. He's a professor of psychology and director of the Laboratory for the Neural Basis of Bilingualism at the University of Houston. And he's also author of the book, The Bilingual Brain. You know, Paula, there are so many myths and predisposed attitudes in regards to bilingualism. We really need to reinforce evidence-based decision-making into our efforts to normalize it in the United States. And this is why Arturo's research is so valuable, because it helps us understand language, learning, and eventually, we hope, influence policy and practice. We know bilingualism is good for our children, and, and we will continue to bring awareness. I completely agree. And in this part of the interview, Arturo talks about the role of age in language acquisition, biliteracy, and language development. He also shares some advice for bilingual parents. So if you haven't already, make sure to check out the first part of our conversation. And if you like what you hear, please rate us and leave us a quick review. Yes, please. Thank you. One thing you mention in your research um, is that there is this window of opportunity for language learning, and we're kind of switching gears, I guess, a little bit here. So could you talk a little bit about that and what you've found? So, so yes, I would say, yeah, definitely there is a window of opportunity. I mean, so, so a lot of the question in the literature has been, you know, and people always say, you know, like at what point when you learn a second language, at what point are you no longer going to be perceived as a native speaker? And, and what I always say is, uh, I used to say, you know, well, if it's, if you mean by accent, then the earlier someone is exposed to and produces the sounds of a language, the better, um, if they want to not have a perceivable accent. Now, the tricky part is there are kids who can imitate the sounds of a language very well, but may not even actually know it because they stopped using that language, right? So it's not enough to just sound like a native there's also the issue of um, there's also the issue of uh, having more to language than um, than just the sounds, right? It could also be grammar. So I think that there is a window for specifically sound and sound-based, and I think it closes relatively early. Um, and, but in terms of grammar and the formal aspects of language, uh, those take a lot longer to develop, and they can be learned relatively well by people that are you know, relatively late learners. So let's say teenagers or even adults right, can learn a second language formally uh, to a pretty high level even though they may not sound uh, like natives. So we, we have to distinguish what level we're talking about. Um, 
in terms of that window closing. But I think I do think that that the window for the sound aspects of language does close relatively early. And if parents are worried about their kids sounding like a native or non-native, that probably they want to have exposure to that language as early as possible. But that's not always possible to do. So I don't know if that answers your question. It does. And, and is there something um, also related maybe to biliteracy where, you know, the rate of success is higher depending on when you start? Um, and even, you know, in terms of maintaining the language uh, long term as well, um, is there a window of opportunity for that as well? Yeah, so literacy is an interesting uh, topic, um, one that I, I hadn't um, I'd been surrounded by this group of people at the University of Houston who are so interested in, in literacy and dyslexia. And I always wondered what the big deal was. You know, why are they so worried about literacy and dyslexia? Um, and it's a big issue in English, right? Reading is really hard. It takes a long time to do relative to Spanish. Spanish is, you know, quite... It's not that there's not dyslexia in Spanish um, or that they're reading not reading difficulties, but it is the case that children learn to say the sounds of the letters much more, much earlier um, uh, than they do in English because English is so irregular. So, so I think that literacy actually, now that I've thought about it more, does really play an important role. Um, and I, I think I didn't really appreciate this until I learned German. Um, because when I learned German, you know, it was very, very difficult. I mean, I was, I was definitely past, well past college age. Um, and so uh, what I found from reading was that I could practice all on my own. Like I didn't actually need anybody to speak to. I could just read a book and somebody, I could have a conversation with myself that was guided by the person who wrote the book, right? So I think literacy is really important. Um, it's obviously harder to achieve but it does change fundamentally the way our language is in our brain and kind of cements it in, in a way. Yeah, biliteracy is something that we tackle here a lot, particularly as it sort of relates to, to books, right? And reading a lot to our children, which helps with, with sound as well, but also with recognition of letters and how they're pronounced in, in the target language. Um, and do you think that that reading to children is something that that would definitely help with the development of, of a second language? Yeah, absolutely. I think reading is really, really important, especially for the second language. And especially, I think, uh, because it's difficult. That's not something kids like, <laughs> but, it, but I think it's actually really good for them to, act, to have to formally read the sentences. And I, again, like I said, it's like somebody's narrating to you, right? So there in the written language, you're receiving almost pristine, perfect input because, you know, when you write a language and you write a book, generally you're trying to write the best sentences you can. And, and there are no, you know, pauses, there are no coughs, you know, it's all written. It's edited by somebody who corrected the language. Uh, and so you're getting almost like this very cleaned up version of language. 
And then you have to decode it, right? You have to take the words, you have to read them, you have to put them in order, you have to make sense of what that sentence meant, which is also quite difficult. So it's actually really hard to do, which kids don't like. Uh, and I don't blame them, right? I, I, and again, like I said, you know, when I have to read in German, it's really hard. And I don't, I don't think I ever had an appreciation for literacy until I started to read in German and re realized this is really hard to do. It's very effortful. You know, it's not fun. Uh, it would be a lot easier to just get Time Magazine and read. And it, I mean, Time Magazine, you know, it's, I, mean, I mean, literally, I, I actually bought the, this Divergent series, right? So Divergent is this, you know, three book series. It's a movie now, too that I, I, I wanted to read something that was kind of like, a, you know, dystopia, you know, dystopia kind of thing. I like those kinds of sets of books and it had science in it, you know, it's about these clans. So I picked it, I went to Barnes and Noble and I looked, I looked at it in English and I said, you know, I could, I could sit here in the store for about an hour and a half and I probably could read all three books in English. Um, and so I said, you know, I'm not going to read them. So then I picked them up in German and I was like, ah, oh, this is, you know, just above the level I can handle, you know, like I, I have to stretch, but I can get it. You know, that that's how hard, that's how difficult it is to read in another language. And so I think that having that aspect is really, really valuable uh, for kids, even though they're going to not be very happy about us as parents making them do it. <laughs> did, Atura, did you learn um, to read in Spanish at home, or or did you go to a school where they taught that? I never learned to read in Spanish. That's kind of the irony. Oh, I mean, we had a little amazing. bit of Spanish at school. Uh, sorry, sorry. Let me let me put it differently. So so I did. You know, I mean, so so you know, I went to Mexico every summer, but most you know, I was always on vacation. I was never in school. We did some sometimes some writing. I remember one time I started crying because my uncle, who's two years older than my mom's youngest brother, is two years older than me. You know, was just killing me. He was writing everything beautifully and clearly. And I was like, oh, so bad. And like, you know, I was crying because he was so much better than me. Um, and, and it's like, you know, big siblings. And so I never really formally learned to write Spanish really until, till, I mean, until 14 where I went for a year and then I had to write Spanish and I had to read it. And, you know, all classes were in Spanish except for English class, which was like, oh, thank you. Everybody hated English class. I loved it because it was easy. Relief. <laughs> yes. But it was, it was writing, you know, everything in Spanish, everything read in Spanish. Um, and, you know, I had it there, but I then had to formalize it. And so it was really hard. That was ninth grade. It was very, very difficult to do. Um, but it really improved my Spanish tremendously, you know, and I can write and read now. And had I not had that year, I don't think I would be, uh, I wouldn't be biliterate. That's interesting. I mean, your story is, is encouraging, I think, because there are some parents who we've heard from who think, feel that, oh, I, you know, I didn't start early enough or my child understands, but we don't really speak it at, the language at home. And it's too late kind of thing. <laughs> but I feel like, and, and I think you mentioned this in your research, that it is possible even at later stages in life. So that's, you know, it's encouraged. It might not be as easy, but it still is possible. I mean, I think it is. I, I do. I mean, so what I did with, so I think the most challenging story I can tell of, you know, my son who, who we were in Germany before we moved to Houston, he was three and he was, my oldest daughter was a, like a language queen. I mean, 
She spoke really early. She spoke in Spanish till she was two. She went to daycare in three, four months. She was speaking English. I mean, she was just an early speaker and a lot. And it's still that case. And my son was quieter and slower to acquire language. And so we went to Germany. And my wife said it's too much for him to be in a school, even though it's an international school in English with all these German kids. And hearing Spanish at home and English. And so she said, you know, for one year, just, just English. So when we got back, his Spanish was gone, like zero, like nothing. Um, he could understand it, but he could not speak. And so basically for three or four years, he would say things in English. I would say them in Spanish, and he would repeat. And we fast forward now to the last trip we did to Germany where I was really excited because, you know, I was like, okay, well, my, you know, I can speak German for a year, right? And so with my youngest daughter, I spoke German, but my son would refuse to speak German to me. He said, one, you know, your German sounds funny, but most importantly, he, <laughs> said, he told me if I don't speak Spanish this year when I'm in Germany, I'm going to lose it. And so he recovered his Spanish essentially over many years, you know, just speaking like he would speak in English. I would say it in Spanish. He could repeat. So he'd repeat everything I said. And we did this. And today, I, I mean, I'm surprised. I thought I wouldn't speak to him in Spanish as an adult, but he's, we'd speak Spanish full on. Um, and high school Spanish helped him to learn the literate part, right? So, you know, my biggest joke with them is I always say basketball and they say baloncesto. Uh, and you know, oh wow! <laughs> because they learned it formally, baloncesto. But nobody in Mexico says baloncesto. We call it basketball. No, yeah, but, yeah. You know, no, so, in Colombia, we don't say it either. <laughs> so, so I do think that it's a different pattern of language acquisition, especially you know, definitely bilingual and multilingual. And I think that's one thing people don't understand that is it's a more it's a more extended you know, form of language acquisition. So my Spanish until I was 14 was really, you know, it was literate. I could read, but I didn't write a lot. It, you know, it's only in that year of immersion at 14 that I really then become biliterate, right? Like fully. And that's probably the best Spanish I've ever had. I'm probably stuck at 14 still, you know, and, and that's okay. <laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with being stuck at 14 in a language that's not your professional language or the language you were fully educated in. There's no shame in saying, you know, my, you know, maybe it's a little bit better because I have some stuff I can bring from English, but I haven't tried to write anything in Spanish for years. And I'm sure it would be really, really hard to do. And I would need help doing it to make it sound more Spanish-like. But I do feel like I could learn to write well in Spanish again, right? And so I think you have to think about, you know, what you can't what you could do not so much what you have at that moment and i think that's the most important thing is giving kids the chance to possibly acquire it and and that's kind of the way uh our minds work that's the way the brain works and we forget quickly so do you think it was like for for example in the case of your son and even yours does it help that you've been exposed to other languages to begin with? Because is it kind of like, does that language just go dormant in your brain or does it, do you really just forget it? And does it, or does it help that you have it there to some degree and it kind of gets pulled out again? I don't know if I'm oversimplifying, but does that make sense? I mean, there have been studies with, with so, so my sense, so the, Part of, in, in my book, I do talk about what's called age of acquisition, and we've done a lot of work on age of acquisition. And, and our feeling is that, you know, learning by 
by kids is much more what we call sensory motor based, right? So it's based on your senses and based on, on doing. So perceiving and doing, if you will, right? Those parts of the brain mature earlier than the sort of higher level parts of the brain that are involved in rule making and decisions and sort of stopping, you know, like our impulses, if you will. Uh, that's why they always say kids are honest, you know, they don't realize that when someone says, you know, does this look good on me? You kind of sometimes say yes, even though you don't really mean it, right? Kids <laughs> will say it looks horrible on you. You look like a clown, right? I mean, and it's like, well, you don't say that. It hurts their feelings, right? So so those kinds of things develop later, and those are more uh, other parts of the brain that come in. And so those early developing parts of the brain, I think, you know, part of language is trying to digest what the sounds are. And, I, and there are people who've written and suggested that exposure to a language early in life, um, somehow there, what remains are the sounds of those language. And the sound is the base, right, if you will. And then from there, of course, you have to add a lot more. But if you have the base, you have more than if you didn't have the base. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing that we talked about in a previous episode uh, with Dr. Ani Castilla Earls uh, was about language being a continuum, right? Where there, there's, you know, you can stop and start at one point, but it's just a long-term process that really never ends. And, and that's one thing that we try to you know, tell parents, right. And that we tell ourselves too, that, you know, it, it's, it's, you can't get down because today your kid wouldn't speak to you in the language that you want them to speak to you. Um, and, and, you know, we wanted to know what advice do you have for parents of, of bilingual children that are trying to ensure that, that both languages are, are growing at the same rate? Yeah. I mean, I, I felt the same way many times. I worried too, just like every other parent I worried. Um, I mean, I had, I had my research to fall back on and in a way I, you know, my kids are kind of like guinea pigs because this idea of, so for example, training my son by just having him repeat, right? That was based on this idea of, you know, the sensory motor processing is present at a young age and that's how kids engage in things. And so I couldn't expect him to speak. I needed to to give him the sounds and then he could just, you know, mimic them, which he could do just fine. And, 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 you know, if we did it for three years and you'd say like, God, why would you do that? But at some point those sounds were there and then he could do them himself. Right. Um, so, so I do think that um, what I think this is true of every child, every child has ups and downs but my sense is that if a child only learns one language, we have a lot less, it's a lot less visible how kind of, I won't, I could use the word chaotic, but we could say irregular is a better word, how irregular development is, right? What happens in when a child's bilingual or multilingual is you notice very clearly how irregular development is, right? Suddenly for one moment they're like speaking and then the next day they can't speak and then you know, they forget and then they remember. I think that that's happening constantly in development, right? Um, because they're changing, their environment is changing. And so you have a lot of ups and downs. It's just not as visible. And I think bilingualism and multilingualism makes it really visible to you how dynamic development is um, and, and kind of eye-opening. So, 
you know, if you're seeing a lot, I would actually argue the opposite. If a child is seems to be stable, I would actually worry that there's a problem. <laughs> what you want is a lot of change. <laughs> That's, That's good to hear, actually. <laughs> We're going to use that as a pull quote. <laughs> Listeners, your child should be unstable. That is normal. <laughs> I mean, and again, by unstable, I mean, they should be different, right? Not unstable, like, you know, one minute they're angry at you, the next minute they're happy, but but not emotionally unstable. But even emotionally, I mean, that's also normal, right? They don't know how to react to situations. They're kind of figuring, trying to figure out their place in the world. And so it's somewhat normal for them. And we have, our job is to guide them and help them figure out who they are and how they can best do, be it best be whoever they're going to be. So in, in language, I think it's the same thing, right? It, it's a very evolving dynamic system that's changing over time. And so it's it in, in bilingualism, you will see that, right? And a lot of parents and teachers will freak out and say, why is that? And, and I can tell you from experience, I mean, if in, in fact, I had never really told and never really thought about it that way, but I really wasn't literate in Spanish until 14, like what I would consider fully literate, right? Um, which is really late, if you think about it. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I think that keeping a sense of playfulness about it is is healthy, you know, and not being so sort of anxious <laughs> about every single minute. <laughs> that, yeah, I think that's true. I think it, it, but it's hard. I mean, there are times when I everybody has doubts. I'm like, oh my, is this really going? Is it too much? Is it too much to do? You know, this should we try to do that? I mean, I, I think if so, one thing I would say is. If the child's stable, then linguistically, then a parent should be worried. And I think that if the parent's not worried, then uh, then there's something wrong. <laughs> the parent should be worried because that's what parents do. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. That, that is very true in every regard, <laughs> not just language. Arturo, so what what are can you what are you working on right now? Is there anything? In, um, in this area of bilingualism that you'd like to share or? So, so, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, so it's kind of an interesting period talking of instability, right? Because when, when I finished my book, I kind of, um, interestingly, so, so I have these three chap, six chapters, right. That are on, on basically, you know, when you learn a skill and the importance of the age at which you learn it, a second, two chapters, um, that are on on how well you do something. So in one case, a skill, and the other, language. And it's always uh, I, it was always a chapter on on what I call nonverbal skills, right? So you could think of sports or music, um, and then uh, and then language and monolinguals, and then a second chapter on bilingualism, trying to make a parallel between what people do outside of language or in a single language to what people do in, in, in bilingualism. And then a third section was on what they call cognitive control, right? So this idea that we have to kind of, like I said, you know, if I'm speaking to a colleague, then I have to know, like, so my colleague had to know that I didn't know what LOS was because that's something maybe they use in their office and not everybody does. And so you could think of control as something that allows you to figure out what you should do and what the right kind of plan is at that moment, similar to driving, you know, should I answer my phone or should I keep looking at the road in front of me? 
you know, well, if you're at a stoplight, then you can answer the phone or you could, you could look at your phone briefly, but you do have to kind of keep looking at the light unless you want to get honked at. And so that's called cognitive control. And so I had that laid out. And then when I got to the last chapter of my book, I was trying to express something that had been frustrating me for a very long time was this sort of dynamic aspect of bilingualism. And so um, in that chapter, I explored what I, what I describe as computational models, right? So models that are used to, to mimic what language learners do. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier the idea of these two species in the ecosystem, which I use as a biological metaphor for language, right? Um, some people call them embodied metaphor, but metaphor that's kind of tangible. And you can think of languages as two species kind of sometimes competing, sometimes helping each other. But you also see that, in fact, Ping Li, a colleague of mine, sees that in his computational models where he simulates language or word learning and bilinguals. And he says sometimes they're kind of fighting. The two languages are kind of fighting and sometimes they're helping each other. And he says exactly what you said is what I see in my models. And so, you know, I'd kind of been frustrated because I didn't have any way to express that to people. Um, and so about a year ago, I was working in a class. I decided that I wanted to review some different theories of language develop, uh, development and uh, cognitive and language development. And so during this class, my idea was to try to do a review paper. And during this review paper, I suddenly one day, because we were talking about something called emergentism, right? So emergentism is this idea that if you put two things together, you get something different. So an example from the 1800s by John Stuart Mill is if you put hydrogen and oxygen together, they become water, right? They become something else, right? They're, they're, they're partly hydrogen, partly oxygen, but they're also a completely different compound now. They're no longer a gas. And so... Um, the idea was, at least not at room temperature, the idea was this emergent, what they call emergent properties, right? And, and I think bilingualism is nice because you do have these emergent properties. You're putting two languages together and what you get is something different that's almost not recognizable by people who only speak one language or the other, right? Just like a water is not a word in either language. And yet for a bilingual, it makes perfect sense that you would do that because they sound similar and then one goes after the other and they mean the same thing. So what I came up with was this term called uh, neurocomputational emergentism. We call it neuroemergentism for short, which is this idea that, you know, we, we need to kind of create models where we can visualize more clearly how languages interact across time and how the brain handles these languages. Um, and, and we could also think of skill learning in general as involving some kind of emergentism, right? where, you know, kids before, um, like, you know, now they have these camps where kids go and they specialize for sports at a very young age. And, and it's like, well, before they didn't have these camps, well, what did kids do? Well, they played outside, you know, they, they climbed trees, they rode their bikes, they threw balls, they threw rocks, maybe not even balls. They, you know, they were doing all this training right out in the world, kicking balls, um, uh, and, and so then when they went to play sports, they had all this natural training that they kind of put together into sports, right? They didn't have camps. The camp was just going out to play outside. It wasn't organized. Um, is that better or worse is a different question. But the point is, you know, when you put, lots, when you put things together, then you, what happens and what appears 
you know, at the age of 20 is more complex from all these little things that are put together. And so I've been working theoretically to try to iron out this, this kind of dynamic view of language development to really, and, I, and, I, and my feeling is, you know, there's a lot of discussion of the sort of monolingual idea of, you know, kind of what I call a monolithic idea of what language and how it should develop. But it's not like that. Even within single language speakers, children, there's a lot of variation, right, in yeah. what kids are like. And, and they go up and down a lot. So I've, I've been toying with that idea. And the second thing more experimentally is to try to look now at individual differences. So we've been doing some work, a little bit of work with genetics um, where we're looking at a couple of genes involved in flexibility and thinking about, you know, when you learn a second language, is there a part of it that has to do with flexibility, with how well you can adapt to something new and still keep the old thing around, which is not really language per se, but more like this adaptability idea. So we're kind of in a lot on this dynamic computational stuff, both from a sort of science side, looking at genetics and people's ability to adapt. And then on the other side, trying to come up with a better way to express this you know, more formally as a, what we call neuroemergentism, right? Which would be sort of brain dynamic uh, processing. That, that's fascinating. And it sort of will, I can't wait to see what comes out of this because um, my little experiment, which is my daughter, <laughs> I'll be able to um, sort of materialize some of the concepts that I'm seeing that she's displaying with your research. So that's great. <laughs> I, I yeah I hope I hope that it does help at least you know once we get it into a more solid form to help to explain what all the parents who bring up bilingual kids experience and try to tell them you know what's it's hard you know what what is a problem and what's not but also to understand that it's very dynamic yeah it's not a straight line <laughs> it's it's much less of a straight line um, and it really does show you how, I mean, on the on the kind of upside, you know, uh, how flexible and how adaptable the mind is that you could pick up something at 14 and 15, right, and then become proficient in it, you know, uh, in a year, right? That, that, that's, that's, uh, that really shows us how flexible we are as humans. Well, um, Arturo, thank you so much for speaking with us. We really enjoyed this conversation and hope maybe you'll join us at a later time to talk about how your research is progressing. I'd be happy to. Thank you. hope you enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Arturo, for walking us around the bilingual brain. If you want to learn more about his research, make sure to check out the show notes and you'll find all that information. Come join us at Entre Dos Community on Facebook to discuss this episode. And you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Entre Dos Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us. 
You can also find us on our network at allpointswest.net. And until next week, hasta la próxima. Nos vemos.